The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We now have the opportunity this New Year's to open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And here I hope a call to a renewed devotion to the local church, a renewed devotion to strive to enter eternal rest. As you'll see the title for today's message, Strive for Eternal Rest. And that's what we will be looking at here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. To just give us some context for how the author of Hebrews is developing his argument, I want to take us back to Israel's history for a moment. Israel had experienced the greatest deliverance from a captive nation that any other nation had ever experienced in that, up to that point in history and would ever experience. They had seen their, with their own eyes the power of God delivering them from an Egyptian pharaoh by giving them a series of plagues and then splitting the Red Sea. They had received God's own word and promises of His presence and protection and provision. The, the very God of the universe had set His affection on this people and pledged to them to give them a land of their own. But on the whole, Israel didn't believe God's promises. They didn't value God's presence. In fact, so disillusioned had Israel become that they claimed that they would rather go back into Egyptian slavery than be in, with God in the wilderness just so long as they would have something better to eat. That is what they said. They were daydreaming about all the good food they had back when they were in Egyptian slavery making uh, bricks without straw in a terrible situation. They just liked the food, apparently. They valued temporal comfort over permanent peace and joy. They weren't believing in God to bring them from that place of wilderness into that place of permanent peace and joy. Well, God did eventually lead them to the promised land, and He bore with His people's complaining and rebellion for many years, and He continued to give them abundant provision. He began, continued to give them clothing that did not wear out. Finally, after miracles of deliverance in Egypt and miracles of provision in the wilderness, God brought them to the precipice of that promised land. He brings them all the way up, and they are about ready to take the land. Surely now they'll stop complaining, now that they see the land and See, oh, God's promise is coming to pass. I can see it with my own eyes. Maybe then they'll stop complaining and they'll shut their mouths. In order to prepare the nation and the nation's military to enter the land and to take it, Moses needed to send out some spies to check everything out. And the, the spies come back and they tell Moses and Aaron that the land is truly rich and abundant. God's promises check out, as it turns out. It is lavish and lush and and abundant, but there's something a little wrong with that property, Lord. The people who are presently occupying that property are big and strong, and we are scared of them. And so these spies come back, and they report that they are scared that the people are big and that they're strong, and the cities are well fortified. But another one of the spies, Caleb, our hero of the story, responds to this fearful report with the courageous, this is what he says in response to that fearful report, he says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. 
So the, the, the scared spies, they see the, the land, it's lush, but they see the problem over there with the people being strong and the cities well fortified. Caleb saw through all of that to see God's, the fullness of God's promise saying, no, we can take it. We can take them, right? We can take them. He has an optimistic outlook. Well, the fearful spies respond to that optimism and that hope and that faith by saying this. This is Numbers 13.31 now. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now wait just a moment. Was Egypt stronger than you are? Was Egyptians' uh, army from whom you fled, were they stronger than you are? Well, yeah, they were, but God wiped them out. Don't you remember that? Surely God will be able to wipe out these people, these occupants here. That's what Caleb saw, but these frightened spies... They say that, that that can't happen. It can't work out. We, we can't do it. And he does this. In Mo, they do this, these, these frightened spies. They do this in Moses' presence. But not only they do it in Moses' presence, they do it in such a way that the, the other people in the nation, they can hear it. And this is how the rest of the nation, the congregation is going to respond. This is now Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. This is, this is in response to hearing these frightened spies give their report. The congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us up to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now this just might sound like a little bit of fear in the face of a uh, strong military. Actually, it's, a, it's serious unbelief. Because you have the God of the universe who has pledged to give you this land and who has shown his power previously in Egypt and in providing for you all these many years in the wilderness. Well, God is angry at this point. He had borne with their grumbling and complaining for many years. In fact, he had borne with their grumbling and complaining for four decades and God said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? That, you can kind of feel a twinge of heartache there, can't you? How long will they despise me? I'm, I'm the God who has lavished everything they need upon them. I'm the God who delivered them out of Egypt. I'm the God who has revealed himself as good and powerful. And, and yet they, they despise me. How long will they despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, Moses, now acting as the Christ figure, as the intercessor, he's going to go before God, he's going to intercede for this sinful people, and he pleads for God to pardon them. He intercedes, and he pleads for God to pardon them, and God does pardon the nation as a whole, but he is going to actually strike down that wilderness generation. This is what God now says in Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. He says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. 
So that wilderness generation is going to be wiped out. But here, those whom you thought would become a prey, he says in verse 31, but your little ones who you said they would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. That's a serious word. And that's the harrowing Old Testament context from which our author in Hebrews is building his exhortation. You can look back up to verse 16 of chapter 3. He's saying to the congregation, and God is saying to us through this word, don't let that happen to you. That's the message. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let what happened to that wilderness generation happen to you. Don't harbor a heart of unbelief and of complaining and bitterness against the Lord. Don't let that happen to you. Don't harden your hearts, as we've heard so many times already from Psalm 95. See, the wilderness generation had harbored sinful, unbelieving hearts, and those trials in the wilderness simply exposed their unbelief. They complained, and they disbelieved, and so God was angry with them, and now we're back in Chapter 3, verse 16 in Hebrews, the author writes, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. The wilderness generation was not allowed to enter that promised land because they didn't believe God. They didn't believe that God was for them. They didn't believe that God was good. Even in the midst of their trials, they didn't believe that God was for them. They didn't believe that God had their best interests in mind. They didn't believe that God it was better to be God, it was better to be with God in the wilderness than it was to be without God in Egypt. They didn't believe that God was more valuable than the earthly comforts in the place where they previously were in their slavery. At the root of who they were, the wilderness generation were unbelievers. That's who they were. At the core of who they were, they were unbelievers. So God did not allow them to enter that rest in the promised land. He killed them before they could enter. Now, the author of Hebrews, he's already alluded to That promised land rest is a picture of a future final rest that God has planned for his people. That promised land was a temporary picture of a greater reality to come in the future. That's why he will say in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and he'll say something similar in verse 8, while it still stands, you need to make sure that you, can, you enter that rest. That's why he can make that connection between the wilderness generation and this congregation. The promise of ultimate rest in heaven still stands. That promise is still out there. It's still held out for us. And his listeners, the author of Hebrews, his listeners and us today need to make sure that they themselves and the members of the congregation do not fail to enter that rest like the unbelieving Jews did in their time before they entered that promised land. Verse 1 again, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
That's the warning. The warning is just like the one he gave in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The, le- the warning here in 4.1 and in 3.12 is for the members of this congregation to have a godly anxiety over their fellow brothers and sisters. To have a godly fear that one of the members of their congregation might defect from the faith, that they might not reach their final rest, that they might not go to heaven. That was what they were supposed to be cultivating, have a godly anxiety. You know, sometimes we tend to think that anxiety is is sinful, and there's times when anxiety is sinful. There's actually a time when the lack of anxiety is sinful, and here's the case. If you don't give a rip about your brothers' and sisters' spiritual lives, that's a problem. Here we are exhorted to have a holy fear that our fellow brothers and sisters who claim the name of Christ, with whom we have fellowship, might fall away. When we start to see them kind of wandering, we're like, ah, I don't need to worry about that. That's a problem. And the exhortation here is to make sure that each and every one of us make it to that final rest. The rest that he's referring to here is not the rest that we experience when we first come to Christ. Surely we've experienced rest when we first come to Christ, don't we? We all love this passage, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come unto me all who are laboring and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest, right? And you come to Christ. The rest he's talking about here is the final rest of our final inheritance in heaven and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. We must be afraid at some level, some kind of holy fear, holy anxiety, you could say, that there may may be some of us here to start to drift away from Christ and don't make it to heaven. Now, it's important to remember he's not saying that this has happened. And he's not saying that, oh, I know who it's happened to. It's happened to that person and that person and that person. Get them out of here. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, here's the warning, lest it happen. We don't want it to happen. So make sure it doesn't happen. So let me ask you, I've asked this again, but now let me just make it a little more pointed. Do you care about the perseverance of your professing brothers and sisters in this congregation? Do you care about that? Do you grieve when you hear of someone among us who has professed Christ but is now living in rebellion to him? Does that cause grief in your soul? And I'm not saying we don't need to grow in this area. We do. Maybe we don't feel appropriate grief. We need to. Does it frighten you? Does it frighten you when an apparent brother or sister starts to become skeptical about the Christian faith or the Bible and becomes enamored with wealth or reputation or status? Does that frighten you? Do you get a kind of flicker of the flash of eternal judgment for a moment in your heart and think, my goodness, that's where they might be going? And does that frighten you? Their previous profession of faith should not comfort us. The only thing we can be looking at is their current attitude towards Christ and His Word and their present pursuit of holiness. That's all that we have to go by. A previous profession of faith shouldn't comfort us if that person is now living in rebellion against the Lord. And you might be thinking, my goodness, Derek, you know, all we are doing is talking about the warnings in the book of Hebrews. And I'm just going verse by verse, so it's not my fault. 
And you might be thinking, why on earth? Or why does it have to be so heavy every time, Derek? Can't you talk about something a little lighter and more fun? And like I said, I'm just going passage by passage. And just preview, uh, spoiler alert, like it, it's going to be like this for most of the time. Deep and heavy warnings that are given to us out of a heart of love. Why? What's the greatest thing, what's the best thing for all of us? To go to heaven, to be with Jesus Christ. To make it all the way to the end. And I've got a few reasons, personal reasons, why we need to continue to hear these heavy messages. I've been a Christian for 23 years. I came to Christ at college. I was going to a college in Portland, Oregon, and I came to Christ there my sophomore year, and I transferred to the Master's College. It was the Master's College at the time. It's now the Master's University. And I transferred there because upon my conversion, I had a, just a desire to study Scripture, and I had a desire immediately to, to be in ministry, whatever that looked like, I didn't know. But I transferred colleges. So my junior year, I start college at a Christian college, the Master's College, a strong Christian college, a, a, a great place, a, a place of great teaching, great discipleship. But I've had many professing Christian friends from my time at college who have drifted away from Jesus Christ. And this is what's so frightening about that. Friends who seem to have a genuine passion for Christ, a genuine love for the saints, and love for the Word of God. But they apparently hardened their heart and have since walked away from the faith. They are in obvious danger of not entering God's rest despite their previous profession of faith. Dan was the first that I can remember. He started to deny the deity of Christ and to act very arrogantly towards his teachers. He became unteachable and eventually ended up an atheist. Then Mark followed in Dan's footsteps for various reasons. And then David, he started to go hard after the world after he graduated from college, and he has since denied the faith. Same with Linda. Others started dabbling in philosophy, not being satisfied in the riches of the truth of God's word, and became very skeptical about the Christian faith, eventually walking away altogether. And that happened with Jason, and that also happened with Peter. And then Tim, someone who mentored me for two whole years while I was at the Master's College, and with whom I sat in his home with his children, and we played games, and we ate food together, and who took me on drives, and who discipled me, well, he eventually left the ministry and his wife for another woman. So, so why the book of Hebrews? I just gave you several reasons why. Why the book of Hebrews? So that no one hearing this message will succumb to the kind of hardness that happened to each of those people. By God's grace alone, I was able to come through. One of the most confusing things for me during that time is, how can these people who profess faith be hardening their hearts towards God? And it was by God's grace alone that he kept me in the church and he kept me in the word, at times feeling like I was hanging on by a very thread, and yet God in his grace, keeping me in his word, keeping me with the saints, which was vital, as we'll talk about in a moment. But that's why, that's why the book of Hebrews, that's why we are going to wade through some of this really tough waters and we're going to walk through this really rugged terrain over the next several weeks. Because I think ultimately what it's going to do is it's going to build a stronger congregation. 
It's going to make us more rugged and it's going to make us more um, strong in our faith and more able to withstand the, the temptations that will so easily tempt us. And something actually we'll see next week, Jesus helping us in the midst of those temptations. And so I look forward to next week. We'll actually get a, a bit of relief next week. So make sure to come back, right? But these are the people that I mentioned. I, I give you their first names to make it personal because these are real people. These are people that I, I, I am terrified of what they will experience if they don't turn back. But these are people with whom I ate and drank and had fellowship. And the call in this text is to make sure that none of us in this body believer, of believers falls away like these people did. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. That's God's design. Now, I'm not suggesting, and neither is the author of Hebrews suggesting, this is something I just keep reminding us, he's, he's not suggesting that genuine salvation can be lost. He believes in the security and permanence of salvation. But the only evidence that we possess a secure salvation is our present perseverance. You can't say that you possess a secure salvation while you are in the throes of unbelief, while you're in the throes of skepticism. The only evidence that we have of each other's salvation is our present perseverance in the faith. But our love for one another and our knowledge of what's at stake, the preciousness of an eternal soul, heaven, hell, should create in us a holy anxiety for any of us who are professing believers in our midst that they might fail, that we might fail to make it all the way to heaven. And you might think, Derek, I don't like those feelings. Those are uncomfortable feelings. I don't want to have to live with anxiety like that in my life. It's just uncomfortable. At times it's unbearable. And I would say, that's the Christian life. That's, the, that's one of the things that we must bear in this Christian life. We can't have some kind of placid emotional life where we just kind of walk through, we don't really feel anything. No, one of the things that we must feel and bear is a holy anxiety for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, which is why he is over and over telling us to make sure that we all make it together. A holy anxiety is what I like to call it. Well, what's the reason for these warnings? Why give this warning in verse 1 again? While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest anybody should fail to reach it. Well, here he is going to give us now the reason in verses 2 and following. The reason is because it's possible for a person to be among believers and not be a believer. That's what was happening here in Israel. Verse 2, For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, some of you I know are reading the ESV, and that's what I just read out of, but I know some of you are reading the New American Standard. And you might be looking at it going, that's not exactly what mine says. So just, let's go through this for a moment. Okay, the ESV says, For the good news came to us just as to them, that's Israel, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The, the NASB says it like this, for indeed we have the good news preached to us just as they did also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So the NASB connects united back to the message, the ESV connects united back to the believers. So you had 
you had a group of people, the ESV sees it this way, you had a group of people in Israel who were unbelieving. And they were not united by faith with the people who were believing. The NASB sees it this way. You had a group of people in Israel who were unbelieving because they were not connected to the message by faith. And, and, and it's, a, it's, it's the difference of one letter in the manuscripts. It's one letter that makes this difference. The beauty of it is that in both readings, you capture the main idea. And the main idea is this. You had people in Israel who were not believing the message alongside of people who were. Isn't that beautiful? So whether you're reading the ESV or reading the NASB, the, the, the message, the main point of that, that text is captured. It's you had a group in Israel who were unbelieving and they were alongside of a group that was believing. And so the warning is to all of us is to make sure that that's not the case here. That there might be someone in here who professes Christ but who is in fact unbelieving. The good news that the wilderness generation heard from God did not benefit them because they didn't believe it. There were some who did believe it. Namely, Caleb, Joshua, maybe a few others. There were those who believed it, but there are those in the majority of Israel in the wilderness generation who didn't believe God's promise that he would deliver them into a permanent home in Canaan. Note that he says good news here. This is, this is interesting. He says the good news came to those wilderness generation just like it came to us. The word translated good news here is the word for gospel. They heard the gospel. That Israel had a gospel, just like we have a gospel. How could he say that they had a gospel? The gospel that Israel heard was this. This is their gospel. God would deliver them from slavery in Egypt and finally bring them to their own land, safe from their enemies and full of all the resources they would ever need to live a happy and contented life in God. That was their gospel. And honestly, that's our gospel, to be, to be honest with you. That's our gospel. God has promised to deliver us from slavery to sin through Christ and bring us into our own eternal land where we will be saved from all of our enemies and have all the resources we need to live a happy and contented life in God forever. That's the gospel. That's the good news that they heard. That's the good news that we hear. But that promise of final rest didn't benefit the wilderness generation because they didn't believe it. That's all. It was a matter of unbelief. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So who gets to enter? Those who are believing. Who does not get to enter? Those who are unbelieving. Now, as the author of Hebrews is interpreting the Old Testament, he's putting some important things together. He's actually going to connect this concept of rest all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, if you can believe that. You look here at the latter part of verse 3. It says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken. Now, of course, he knows it's Genesis. He just, this is the way this author writes. For he has spoken somewhere. It's not like he's lost or he doesn't know where it's quoted. He knows the Old Testament clearly inside and out. Somewhere is spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. That The author is now quoting from Genesis chapter 2 when God had finally done all of the creation. He had created the heavens and the earth and all the, the, the land and the creatures and now his crown jewel of, 
of mankind, of humankind, and he did that in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And so the author here is looking back on that rest, and he's saying that the way that God structured the very week of creation is an indication that he's providing a picture, he's providing a, an illustration of his plan to give his people ultimate rest. And then he, then he made this even more graphic in the way that he structured Israel's religious and national life. Israel's weeks were structured this way, the same way that God created the heavens and the earth. Six days of work and one day of rest. Exodus 20.11, God said this to Israel, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And because he built that into the very fabric of creation, he is now going to have Israel reflect that in their national and religious life. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now that day, that seventh day, that you had that six days of rest, that, that last day is going to be a day of rest. And reverence for that day of rest was built into Israel's national law system and required very severe punishment if you violated that day of rest. It was a day of rest and worship for God's people. You labor for six days, and then that seventh day, you are going to rest and you're going to worship the Lord. You're going to devote yourself to worship, and there's very clear things that you may not do on that day. Strict rules of things you could not do. This pattern of work... And rest was built into the very fabric of creation by the way God created the universe and human beings in six days. And then it was embedded into his people's national and religious life. But, this is, this is key, the fact that it, God had built it into the creation and then embedded it into Israel's national and religious life indicates that that rest pattern is actually bigger than Israel. This pattern and, and the pattern and meaning and significance of this rest transcended Israel's national and religious life. It was bigger than Israel. And that's important because it tells us why the author continues to quote Psalm 95. He has quoted Psalm 95 a number of times, and he's going to continue to do it now in verse 5 again. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. See, when David wrote Psalm 95, he is writing it several centuries after the wilderness generation. And he is telling his contemporaries, this is about 1000 BC, he's telling his contemporaries, look back at that wilderness generation and do not harden your hearts like they did because they were unable to enter God's rest. Now, his contemporaries would have known exactly what he's talking about. David, he's warning us to not harden our hearts and fail to enter the rest. But wait a second, wait a second. We are in the land. Hmm. If you're telling us not to harden our hearts, just like the wilderness generation, and that original warning was for them so that they, or the, the, that, that original indictment was for them because they failed to enter the promised land because they didn't believe but here we are in the land. What is David teaching through Psalm 95 then? He's teaching that there's a, another rest. There's an ultimate rest. There's a rest that's bigger than the promised land rest. That was a merely, mere temporary picture of a permanent rest. 
In fact, he calls it his rest. He calls it God's rest. They shall not enter my rest. That rest that was established on that seventh day of creation. In Psalm 95, David is exhorting his contemporaries not to harden their hearts like the wilderness generation because there is a possibility that his contemporaries would miss out on their rest just like the wilderness generation missed out on their rest in the promised land. The author of Hebrews continues to repeat Psalm 95 over and over and over because Psalm 95 teaches by the way it falls in redemptive history and as you look back, it teaches that there is a rest that is more important than the promised land rest. There is a final rest for God's people. But you can take that example of the Israelites who failed to enter the promised land because of unbelief and you can apply it now to us And we must make sure that we don't fail to enter our final rest because of unbelief. Verse 6, since therefore it remains, here it is, for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he points a certain day. Today, saying through David so long ago in the words already quoted about 20 times, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's a, it's a message to David's contemporaries. It's a message to us that looks back at the wilderness generation and says, do not fail to enter your rest like they failed to enter their rest. Look at verse 8 now. For if Joshua had given them rest, see? Well, eventually Joshua did, right? Eventually they got into the promised land. But if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not have spoken of another day later on. So the author of Hebrews is looking back at David and he's interpreting the Old Testament, putting it all together like this. It's clear that that promised land rest wasn't the ultimate rest because God spoke of another one later on. Now, I want us to just camp out just for a moment. This could be a sermon in itself, and maybe we need to do this someday as a sermon. But I want us to camp out a little bit on verse 9. It says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is vitally important because it teaches us that the day of rest that God embedded into Israel's national and religious life and then carefully protected by strict laws was only a temporary picture of a greater spiritual reality. I hope that's become clear. By the author of Hebrews calling it a Sabbath rest, he's saying that there is something that, that Israelites' religious life was pointing toward, something greater. Israel's Sabbath rest was patterned after God's rest on the seventh day, uh, seventh day after he had created, not the other way around. Now that Christ has come and made the way for us to enter our final rest, the Sabbath, as described in the Pentateuch, and required by God for the nation of Israel, is no longer an obligation for Christians. Let me say that again. The Sabbath that was required by God in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant for Israel, is no longer an obligation for Christians. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, and neither is Saturday for the Seventh-day Adventists. Christians are not under obligation to obey that requirement that is clearly an Old Covenant requirement. Has the church historically from Acts and the epistles onward set aside Sunday as the Lord's day of worship? Yes, and it's been based on the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Yes. Should you prioritize 
the fellowship and corporate worship with your brothers and sisters? Yes. In fact, he's already made that point, and the author of Hebrews will make that point even stronger in chapter 10. Is it a good idea to not work seven days out of the week and rest one day a week? Yes. Yes to all of those things. But the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was fulfilled in Christ and in our future coming rest in heaven and ultimately on the new earth. And yet there are some Christians today, and some whom I highly respect, there are some Christians today, some high, even high-profile teachers, who will tell us that we need to obey that fourth commandment, to obey the Sabbath, to reverence the Sabbath. Well, I want to be as clear as Paul would be on this matter. Paul would say in Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food or drink, or with regard to festival or new moon, or a Sabbath. Why? What's the theological undergirding of Paul's statement? Well, it's, it's, we're given it here in, in Hebrews. That ultimate Sabbath rest is in our heavenly home. Israel only provided a picture. That's all. That Sabbath that Israel was required to obey and observe was only a picture of that future rest that belongs to God's people. Paul continues, these, the Sabbath, festivals, food and drink, these are a shadow of things to come, all the things in the Old Covenant, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Covenant system and law was a shadow of things to come, but the reality belongs to Jesus. And in Hebrews 4.9, we are told that the Old Covenant Sabbath was specifically a picture of a coming future rest with God for eternity. So you might, even in your own conscience, may think there are certain things that I cannot do on a Sunday. I cannot play sports. I cannot play a board game. Maybe you grew up with these kinds of rules and regulations. Why? Because you must reverence the Sabbath. No. No, that was for Israel. There is not a long list of things that you are unable to do on a Sunday. Should you prioritize worship? Absolutely. And I'll press that home, especially in chapter 10, along with the author of Hebrews. But we are not obligated to obey the Sabbath like Israel was. That Sabbath was a picture of our coming future rest. So if you want to go out and play Ultimate Frisbee after church, have at it. Happy New Year. So, with those important theological truths in place, the author of Hebrews is now going to apply the truth to his listeners. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What disobedience? The disobedience that flows from a heart of unbelief, just like we saw in that wilderness generation. But you might be thinking, strive, what? Strive? Isn't that salvation by works, Derek? Why would he be saying this to believers? Now, he's already labored and will continue to labor to, and one of the, the magnificent things about the book of Hebrews is how often and how thoroughly the author holds up the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as being sufficient to cover all of our sins. And that the way of salvation is by faith and faith alone. 
Christ has provided all. There's nothing left for us to add. We can't add anything. We can't contribute to that sacrifice. It is perfect. It is whole. It is complete. It is once for all. Nothing to be added. He's clear. The author is clear that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to save us apart from our works. And then he'll even say in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Faith is is central to all of this. And he is clear that genuine salvation can't be lost. We've covered that. Again, though, the question that I want you to continue to ask as we work our way through Hebrews is this. How does God keep his people who possess a secure salvation, how does he keep them believing? How does he keep them in the faith? How does he keep them moving forward and not drifting off into the off the narrow road. How does he do that? By exhorting us strongly to strive daily to enter that final rest. To keep fighting the good fight of faith. To keep fighting to believe. To keep confessing our sins to God and others. To not become lazy with our spiritual lives. To not allow our heart to become hard. To press into the kingdom. To strive. See, some People may not come to Christ because they think the Christian life is too hard. And that might be a deception that Satan wields. Like, oh, don't come to Christ. This, will be, this hard road will be too hard. Another deception that Satan can wield is that the Christian life is a walk in the park. He just kind of waltz into heaven. And everything is always good. You just kind of dance. You, you come to Christ and life's good and you just dance into heaven. No fighting, no striving, no straining, no grief, no anxiety, no pain. That would be a massive deception too. And I'm hoping the author of Hebrews is knocking that deception right out of here. Because as we see here in this text, and we've even seen it in past texts that Cliff has preached out of the book of Luke, the Christian life is a life of fighting and of striving. At the core of that is saving faith. At the core of that is faith. So all this striving and working and laboring, it comes from a heart of faith. So this isn't salvation by works. But a faith that is real is a faith that strives, a faith that moves forward, a faith that puts away sin, that repents. Why all this striving? Well, he's going to give us an immediate reason right here in in verse 12. Verse 12 might be a familiar verse for all of us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and to spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we often will say that, see, that's what, that's what the Bible, the Bible, the word of God, it's sharp and it cuts and that's what the Bible is like. And I would say, well, amen, because any attribute that's given about the word of God would be an attribute about scripture because scripture is the word of God. So I have no problem with that. What's happening here in the context, though, is that this is in the context of final judgment. That's, when, that's what this text is referring to, verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give an account. The context here is judgment. So yes, this is referring to the word of God, but it's referring specifically to the word of God at judgment. Given the greater context and the author's example of the wilderness generation, the connection between the warning in verse 11, uh, warning in verse 11 and to the wilderness generation is this: Just because a person associates with the people of God doesn't mean they are one of God's people. 
Just because a person associates with the people of God doesn't mean they are one of God's people, just like in the case of the wilderness generation. You had believers and unbelievers mingled together. And there will be a day when God will pierce through any religious facade that we have created. His word of judgment will pierce through everything, any kind of facade, any kind of fakery that we've put in front to to make people think that we are a certain way. If we come to church and smile and act courteously, engage in religious conversation, but our heart is wrapped up in the world and we're not loving God and we are unbelieving and we are indulging in sin, all we need to know is that someday God's word will pierce through that facade. We will be laid utterly bare, completely open to the living God, no longer able to hide behind our religious activity. He will pierce right through that religious veneer if we've created that religious veneer. The, the answer then is to let us strive to enter God's rest because God's know, God knows whether we are real or not. If, you're, if there's someone here who is hiding behind a religious veneer, the call of this text would be, turn from that and come to Christ. Before it's too late. God's gonna, God can see it all anyway. He can see it now and He's going to lay it bare for everyone to see someday in the future. Don't settle for a superficial Christianity where you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. God will someday expose us to the very core of who we are. There'll be no hiding. It's inescapable. Don't wait for Judgment Day when it's too late. That's the warning of this passage. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must must give an account. Let's apply this text in a few concrete ways as we close out. It goes without saying, heaven is real, hell is real. Jesus Christ has opened the door to eternal life and eternal peace, eternal wholeness, eternal joy, eternal holiness. If you've believed in Christ, the exhortation of this text is to continue to fight the fight of faith. Continue to do what you need to do to feed your faith. Continue to do what you need to do to shed those things which tend to dampen your affections for Christ. Keep believing. Keep striving. God's promises of full forgiveness and eternal life are sure and steadfast. He will not break His promise to you. You believe, He will save. You believe, He will save. As we are taught in chapter 12, when we get, eventually get there, we need, to be, we need to shed even the things that, we, that, that even we might judge as good things, but tend to weigh us down from running our race fully with passion and with focus. True faith runs the race with, with passion and focus. The call here is to keep believing in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Keep holding out the beauty of the gospel always. I just find myself constantly reading Romans chapters 3 and chapter 4 to just always be putting before me the gospel, the truth of what Christ has done on my behalf, that I don't lean on my own righteousness. 
I collect and read books that are specifically about the doctrine of justification and the gospel and what Christ has done so that I might continue to grow in my appreciation for the doctrine of justification that I don't lean on my own works and my own righteousness. That's part of what saving faith does. It continues to treasure the gospel. Keep believing in the forgiveness of sins that Christ has procured for you on the cross. Keep trusting in God's goodness in your suffering. I see people get waylaid in their Christian life through suffering. This is why the church is so vital. We need to hold each other up when we're suffering. That, the temptation becomes great to defect when we are suffering. Keep rolling your anxieties upon an all-sufficient God who has everything you need and who works on behalf of those who wait for him. Plead with God. Do you do this? I do this. Plead with God to keep your heart soft. You might be thinking, yeah, I'm saved. I'm saved. Why do that? Because that's what saved people do. I don't want my heart to get hard. Plead with God to keep your heart soft and to give you a love for Christ that surpasses everything else. Keep believing the promises of a secure salvation. It's a glorious salvation. God has done everything that he could do to give you assurance Keep confessing your sins to God, and here's this is what's vital, and to one another, and to walk in a good conscience. And this last part is, is crucial. If we've learned anything in these last few weeks, if we've learned anything in chapters 1 through 4, it's this. We need each other in order to make it all the way to our final rest. We need each other. I need you, and you need me, and we all need one another. We need deep, Christ-centered relationships here at CBC. Not only are they the most wonderful things in the world, but they keep us in the faith. We need to gather ourselves around ourselves, brothers and sisters, who will tell us what we need to hear, who have the courage to tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want to hear. You know, it hurts to be told the truth sometimes. It just hurts. And I go home mad. But about an hour later, I'm like, praise God, I feel so much better now. God has used that truth to, to just shred my soul and to open my heart and to humble me and, and to now soften me. And, and so we need that kind of engagement with one another, the courage to tell me the truth, the courage to tell you the truth, words that keep us believing and repenting and resisting the allure of sin. We need friends who will come after us when we begin to drift. We need friends who will have a holy anxiety over us that we will make it all the way to heaven. That's God's design. If you are just having fun here at CBC, and it, quite honestly, it's a place where there's a lot of fun happening, honestly. But if you're just having fun and you're just fulfilling a social need, you haven't taken these warnings seriously enough. We need to go deeper. We need to expose ourselves to one another through the confession of sin, and we need to speak the truth and love to one another. If you're keeping away from deeper relationships at CBC because you don't want to expose your sin to others, you're cultivating a, a, a dangerous habit. You might be thinking, I confess my sin to God. Well, yeah, that's a commandment in Scripture. It's also commanded to confess your sins to one another. And oftentimes that's even more humbling in God's design. I can go in the privacy of my own closet and I confess my sin to God. But when I have to look the person in the eye and confess it to them, that's powerful. That uproots sin in a powerful way. 
On the other side of the coin, we have to be the kinds of friends, the kinds of brothers and sisters who are willing to speak to one another, to speak the truth in love, to say a hard word, not in a way that's mean or hard, overly harsh or just because to get something off our chest, but something that's pointed, that's intentional, that's the right word at the right time, but is, has the courage enough to say, listen, brother, or listen, sister, you are headed in the wrong direction. That attitude is wrong. That, that bitterness is wrong. That thought is wrong. That action is not right. This is where Christ would have you. This is what his word says. Let's search it together. Let's pray together. Let's continue to persevere together. We need to be those kinds of people. So if you name the name of Christ today, the instruction to you from this text is to continue to strive to enter God's final rest. Getting to heaven must be the most important goal of your life. Not marriage, not children, not retirement, not a house, not worldwide travel, not a new job, not a certain level of health or certain amount of wealth or recognition. Heaven. Let these past few weeks and these words of sharp warning push you deeper into the body of Christ. I think that would be the final application that I would lay. Let it press you deeper into the body of Christ so that body of Christ can push you deeper into Christ himself for the sake of your perseverance and your eternal joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful, challenging text. I do pray that it would be used by you to create in all of us relationships that help press us towards the Lord Jesus that clear away sin, clear away the, the dead wood of sin and, and enable us to see you more clearly, help us to confess our sins to one another. God, I pray above all that you would protect the spiritual lives of every person here that names the name of Christ. And then I pray if there's someone here who does not know Christ or maybe someone here who is, has a kind of facade they're keeping up, that you pierce through that, that you be merciful to them, that you be gentle with them and, and pierce through that veneer and that facade and, and show them the beauty of the love of Christ and the, the joy of a clean conscience and the joy of spiritual authenticity. Lord, I just pray that you would do that work among us. Make us a stronger, more faithful people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.